politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow subjects and wards of the state to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for a brand new week of excitement and tyranny on Monday, July 27th. And folks, you know, this has obviously gotten very personal to me. And it's personal to everyone. You can no longer chalk this up to being, ah, it's stupid politics. I wish it weren't that way. It's dumb. It's flat earth. It violates natural law. But what are we going to do? The masters control us. Let's go on living our lives. You see, the problem now is you cannot live your lives. As we have warned you for years in general and for months with the corona fascism and the corona lies, is that you will be made to care. And I'm sure many of you you are in this predicament where we had a conference call last night, private school for our sons. We have one going into fifth grade, third grade, and kindergarten. And they said that all kids will have to wear masks all the time. Don't worry, they're going to take mask breaks to go outside or something. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I know more than all of these clown executives of the school put together. They're literally feeding out of the trough of the media. I'm like, there's got to be a little bit of nuance. Like, you understand the data on children. Like, you understand the data on transmission from children and the risk to them, even before we get into the efficacy of masks. Like, you get that. Now, obviously, that was rhetorical because it was a one-way call. There was no debate, no input, no anything. And here's what they're doing. I turned to my wife and I said, you know, God sometimes makes it very easy for you when you mull over certain decisions. We're not putting up with that. And we're pulling our kids out. So I could use your advice, your prayers, you know, what to do with homeschooling. Obviously, uh, it it just doesn't work for us to have my wife do what she's been doing the last few months. So we're going to have to find someone. But if you have any good ideas on how to approach that, let me know. But I want to preface today's show with three quotes. The first one from Voltaire. Those who make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Next one's from Hamilton. The nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. The final one is from Frederick Douglass. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have the exact measure of the injustice and wrong which will be imposed on them. Where is that wall? Because I'm telling you, when you have this moral hazard, we talked about this on Friday with the mask mandate, that I believe you, even when you're healthy, even when you're not doing any action, you're just walking in locomotion, breathing free air, you are a danger to me. And therefore, I can do anything I want to you. No debate, no transparency, no benchmarks, no evidentiary standards, no statute of limitations. Okay, like maybe for a month, maybe when we get to this point. No. As the Miami government put out, this is the new normal. This will never end. Obviously, many of you have seen the story of a couple in San Diego with their dog in a dog park sitting near nobody outdoors in the heat, where there is literally, I mean, incontrovertible, one-sided evidence, nobody disagrees, in the heat outdoors, especially when you're alone, there is no transmission. This animalistic woman comes up to them and yells at them for not wearing a mask while they're eating, and then comes back a minute later and maces them, unloads an entire bottle of mace. The husband shielded his wife from it and was taken to the hospital. I'm seeing a lot of these stories as well. Panic, fear, groupthink, hatred. When you put it together, it is the worst human emotions. Where now people who are in the image of God are unique individual faces. We've been dehumanized where you can no longer walk around without a face burqa. And every day this panic 
spirals out of control. The more there are cases and the more it shows what we all said from day one, but they mocked us that the cases are widespread, but the death is very, very limited and very controlled to certain people. And that you need to achieve herd immunity among those that are lower risk precisely to get it done with. So these people not only will be less likely to die, but also if you're more vulnerable, so you don't atrophy. There's terrible stories of senior abuse where they go overboard and they say you can't even be outside and they they lower their vitamin D levels. We're going to be talking about that this week, all of the ways that we are messing with God's natural immunological, immunological ecosystem that he created for a reason. And we mess with it and we turn the healthy into sick and we're going to create a man-made plague that is much worse than this. But really what is going on is not a plague that is clinical or medical or scientific. It is an emotional plague for which there will never be a vaccine or herd immunity or efficient clinical treatment. What we are finding is that data and rational thought doesn't work in this emotional epidemic. It just doesn't matter. I mean, you could literally have in the state of California where 100 kids died in the 2018 flu, not a single kid died from this, and, and kids are a major vector of flu transmission to vulnerable adults, by the way, whereas here they are not. I mean, study after study after study, um, tracing after tracing, there has not been a single case found. And even if you could find it, you know, again, it's not, it's not a significant vector. We don't we never upend life based on such a low threshold and assumption of risk. But no one has ever thought of the consequences, the psychological trauma to children doing this all day, the, the carbon dioxide. You know, another, another point a doctor has made to me is, you know, God has a very efficient way of giving us lungs. Our lungs weren't designed to wear a face diaper all day. Again, you have certain scenarios where certain interventions are needed, like antibiotics are needed, where things aren't working, but generally they work, which is why you never want to overprescribe antibiotics. So it's a similar thing here. Our lungs efficiently filter out certain things. If you have feedback on the mouth indefinitely everywhere, every place, every time, Let's say someone is asymptomatic, which is why they're saying you need it. You're going to turn them into a symptomatic patient because you're going to grow and recycle the viral load rather than expelling it. That's just one important thought. But you look at the immunological ecosystem. It's beautiful. The more I study this, you see the hand of God where kids... You know, I always wonder, like, kids are so dirty. Like, why does God make that? Um, you know, I've, I've, I'm on to my fourth baby now, uh, you know, our youngest daughter. And, you know, obviously, their, their first way of exploring the world is through the mouth. And it's like, ew, why does God do that? It's so natural. And now I understand it. Because God makes the immune system of kids like like a like a fireball, boom, 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 boom. It, the, the the antibodies, the white blood cells, they they shoot at any pathogen, anything that they sense is is foreign to the body. It just shoots at it. It's it's extremely aggressive. Um, it it doesn't um discriminate, doesn't decipher. It just shoots at everything. So God makes it kids, I mean, always, they always have a stuffy nose, some degree of a cold, they get fever more often, but you know what? It's a good thing, because what that does is exposes them, and now we see that with COVID, kids are in harm because they have that cross immunity from that ecosystem of, of immunology of them going together with other kids and going to school and getting it and getting the colds and getting the fevers. When you now try to go and filter that out and distort God's ecosystem, ironically, you're going to block their cross immunity. They have now found among kids, we, we talked about adults really have a sliding scale of varying t- degree of T-cell memory immunity, which explains why a lot don't get it. Um, You have husbands and wives, shipmates, prison mates, one will get it, one won't. Or you have some degree of asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic. It's a weird phenomenon. And it turns out that there's this cross immunity that we get other coronaviruses. But in adults, it's not as strong. It's not antibodies, it's T-cells, it's partial. 
it, it doesn't last forever. Um, whereas with kids, kids, um, a they've gotten in the colds more often, more recently. It typically it seems like every five years you get a coronavirus. Um, one of the four colds, and it accounts for about fifteen to thirty percent of colds any given year. It could be in Asia. It accounts for more of them than the rhinovirus. And what happens with the kids is, unlike adults, will not produce antibodies, and that's fine, but it will be more of a mild response. With kids, it downright um, produces antibodies. I'm going to try to write about that study out of England. Um, phenomenal study. And you know, one doctor made an important point to me. Why isn't Fauci, who, who was reared in immunology his whole life, why is he not at least every other day giving a speech, giving, giving the good news? Showing this stuff and showing it you don't want to mess with it. Why is it all panic and porn? No balance. And again, to the detriment of herd immunity. There's a terrific article out. I've seen someone pass it out to me. You could Google it. It's from a Harvard immunologist. That anti-herders are the new anti-vaxxers. They are the ones against science. They are the ones that are ensuring that we don't get over this. That the vulnerable people will remain exposed to this longer than they need to because a cold to healthy people is now the new panic threshold. When you indiscriminately don't age or health status stratify and certainly most evident with children... When you create voodoo social symbols, like I will tell you, there is actually one case where I am probably more strict by following the science, believe it or not. And that is my fear is they're making this mask thing such a cult. You could have someone who generally genuinely is. I, I've, I've seen a guy that I know that has like all of it, kidney, pulmonary, heart, diabetes, like you name it. He's got it. All of the top four vulnerabilities probably as low, you know, probably as vitamin D deficiency, too. And I saw him indoors with people with a mask. And I was thinking to myself, he probably thinks like the mask is like a savior. When we, we proved on Friday that the purveyors of the mask cult, uh, the mask cult, they themselves admit it doesn't work because they say, if I don't wear it and I have it, they're going to get it. Well, you're wearing it. And if you tell me that a mask doesn't work to block stagnant floating virons, then certainly it can't work on the transmitter who's talking and spitting on it and sneezing on it and using the velocity of his windpipe against those fibers of that mask and the openings around it. And conversely, if you're going to tell me it works for that, certainly it will work on the receiving end. A friend of mine who's, who has this Twitter handle, Colorado Hurricane, he put out a great infographic explaining the point I was making. But this is where we are. You got to stand up. This will not end. Bill Gates is out there saying now, right? Bill Gates is the big medical expert now, by the way. That, this is where it's all coming from, among other people. He's the big vaccine man. Now he says, well, it's going to have to be multiple vaccines. So notice how the goalpost, the 15 days to flatten the curve, when everyone understood, it just, look, it might be, this might be the worst burst of it, so we, we can't have too many hospitalizations at once. That was the only sane argument. But nobody ever thought that you could block indefinitely a virus, that somehow you could just lock down until you somehow get a magical vaccine, which has never been proven with a coronavirus. And for good reason, because God doesn't design the world that you need it. The ones that were really bad, like smallpox, he gave us the wherewithal to have a foolproof one. But something like this is like a pandemic flu. And you got to have the people that need, need it get it. And shield the, the small percentage that really you don't want them to get it. And that's how you get over it. And if that is too much of a risk for you, if one-seventh of the deaths of the flu for children is too much of a risk 
to send them back to school without the face burka and the psychological trauma? Let me tell you something. The vaccine ain't going to help because just like with the flu, 50% of people who die from the flu had the vaccine. I'm not against it. But I think everyone agrees that it's, it's certainly very far from foolproof. It's not like some others with these respiratory viruses that really like mutate very rapidly. They're not designed for that. So then they'll be like, oh man, it's not helping. So those of you who think somehow there's going to be a magical vaccine within a few months, <laughs> boy, I feel bad for you. You have no choice but to stand and fight. Fight the school board members. Fight the county commissioners, the county executive. Talk with the sheriff and say, how dare you? How dare you allow violent people to surround cars? We had more of this over the weekend. They could just take over roads and surround people and pull them out of their cars and they won't do anything. The blood libels matter, rioters, the mobsters. Yet somehow you're going to enforce people not wearing a mask now, even outdoors. And just, it, it's, it's insane. This is literally what Galileo had to go through. Medieval superstition. Utterly insane. So folks, I wanted to get to our next guest. We're talking about the emotional epidemic, which is really at its heart what this is. And, you know, I was thinking, one of the biggest symptoms we're seeing of this plague is censorship. Because if you want to keep everyone into fear, panic, and groupthink, well, you can't have anyone putting out rational thought, real data on science of microbiology, virology, um, immunology that we, we've understood really until March, or even in the case of CDC and Mass in their own in-house journal until May. You, you can't have that. And we've seen an unprecedented uh, effort to just censor people. Facebook, Twitter, Medium.com. They would just take down really, really well-written articles with charts and everything, trying to you know, answer some of the core questions. Did the lockdowns work and things like that? No, you, you are not allowed to say that. So with us today is someone who has been censored. Clearly, meaning that he has done some good work, Dr. Scott Jensen, is a state senator in Carver County, Minnesota, very important state in this battle for a number of reasons we'll talk about. But he's also a family physician. He owns a medical clinic. The Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians named him the Family Physician of the Year in 2016. And less than two months ago, Dr. Jensen put out a video. And by the way, you could follow him on Twitter at Dr. Scott Jensen. And that Jensen is spelled J-E-N-S-E-N on Twitter. And we'll uh, link to that. So he put out a video warning that he was under investigation by the Board of Medical Practice in Minnesota for making statements just questioning the way we're counting the COVID deaths, which Dr. Burks has questioned. Um, you know, the health directors in Illinois and several other states blatantly said that, look, you know, anyone who tests positive, they are, they are being uh, counted if they die subsequently, irrespective of what they died of. And you're not allowed to even talk about that. So he's under investigation, and I've been meaning to get an update from him to see what is going on. So with no further ado, Dr. Jensen, thanks so much for joining us today on CR Podcast at Blaze Network. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. So you really stand at the nexus of this battle being in medicine and politics as a state senator dealing with a Democrat governor who is just um, who the only criminals in his mind are people who don't wear a mask, not those that burn down police stations and just riot and destroy the uh, the Twin City area. Um, truly, truly a world upside down. What I don't understand, if you could shed some light on, as you discuss what has happened to you, the state of this investigation, why you were told they're looking into you for um, simply exercising your freedom of speech, in general, what in the world has happened to the medical profession? And where does this end? Uh, you know, What else... Can the media now dictate in terms of treatment? Because, doctor, I have watched the evolution of this mask issue, and CDC was very adamant about it. Our government was very adamant about it, that about the lack of efficacy, the risk of cross-contamination, how it certainly doesn't work in an acute clinical setting. And yet, here we are, 
I watched the media kind of beat the drum and shame and shame and shame. And then suddenly they got on board. What is going on with that? In short, the science has been sacrificed at the altar of fear and panic. And it's unfortunate. I personally think that if we're going to look at worthwhile data on masks, we have to look at literature and research that was published before 2020. Because over Mm. the last few months, there's been a lot of dry labbing of research. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we sort of know before we start the experiment what we want the experiment to show. I think that truly objective research tries to focus on randomized controlled trials, tries to utilize double-blinded studies so the administrators of the study don't know which is which. Those are the kinds of things that are reliable. And for decades, the data has demonstrated that respiratory viral particles such as influenza have not been, if you will, eliminated or substantially mitigated by cotton or surgical masks. Yes, the N95 mask has greater capacity to filter small particles down to 0.3 microns, but we need to remember that a COVID-19 particle is smaller than that at 0.1 micron. I think we also need to remember that many people that wear the N95 mask have a central cylindrical exhaust valve indicating that uh, they're filtering what they breathe in, but what they breathe out, they're not filtering at all. And that's why in the governor, uh, the governor's edict on last Thursday regarding masks in Minnesota, he said the N95 with an exhaust valve on it was not an acceptable mask to wear. So I really think that we're, we're in a world that doesn't make sense scientifically, but here we are. And I honestly think that for now, the mask debate has been settled because there is no interest in facts and science. What's going to happen is we're going to start seeing the unintended consequences. We're going to start seeing people, young people, children, five years old wearing masks. We're going to start seeing them get sicker than they might otherwise because they're basically breathing and rebreathing their own organisms that might normally not cause a problem if it's in the nose. But if they're inhaling it into the lungs, we may well start seeing more disease that way. And didn't God create us with a with a pulmonary system in the lungs that are designed to filter out these pathogens? So it wasn't designed to have something like that on your face in all in, in all settings. And I was wondering, for example, let's say you did have COVID, but you're asymptomatic. Who's to say it won't refilter and increase your viral load and turn you into symptomatic? I mean, has anyone thought about that? Like, you know, as an unintended consequence. And also, what about the the risk of carbon dioxide poisoning? Daniel, you're exactly right. I mean, sometimes we need to quit spewing facts and start focusing on what questions should we be asking. And your question about could we potentially have a very light viral load and so we have an asymptomatic infection with COVID-19 that we're not even aware of, but by rebreathing, we might actually increase the viral load potentially in deeper recesses of the pulmonary or lung tissue so that we might become symptomatic and truly have a problem. That's absolutely uh, possible. We also don't ask the questions about what is it to get immunity? Right now, we have this notion that if you don't have antibodies, you don't have immunity. But there have been some excellent studies out of Europe that indicate that you can have immunity through your T cells your T lymphocytes. And if you do, there are some studies that indicate for every person that has antibody immunity or humoral immunity, that there might be twice as many people with cellular immunity. And then we also have the people who are disease resistant, uh, much like, uh, if you will, leprosy. 90% of the population in this country couldn't get leprosy if they put it on their Cheerios in in the morning. You can't get it because you're immune to it. And we have a certain number of people that are going to be unable to get COVID-19. When you put all that together, then the idea that we have to have 70, 80% to get herd immunity is probably not valid. So we need to ask ourselves questions rather than just, you know, if you will, spew. Why did only 17% of the people on the Diamond Princess get COVID-19 when this was a perfect medium, a perfect culture for everybody to get it? Of those 83% that didn't get it, how many of those were immune, but we couldn't tell? How many of those could never get the disease if they tried to? We need to ask better questions. 
Yep. No, and, and we spoke about this on Friday at Fort Benning. There was a whole group of new soldiers came in. They were quarantined for 14 days. Then all wore masks, all did all the things. And you can imagine in a military setting, they ain't kidding around. I mean, there's going to be 100% compliance there. And yet still the irony is um, 140 or so out of 640 got it. It was 22%. So A, the interesting thing is the mask didn't work, which we you know we know. Um, but B, what, what was funny is once it didn't work, it stopped at where? 22%. It's it's all around that thing. We've seen that a lot of meatpacking plants. So that's certainly an important point. Um, my concern is, and, and, my, and, and this is where I want to get back to the medical part, but switching to your political hat as a state legislator, where does this end? Because my biggest concern about the moral hazard here, there's several moral hazards. One is this, the precedent that no matter what the evidence is, or not, I have the right to mandate something on your own free breathing of air where you're, you're you know, it's not like you're smoking. When you when you smoke, you take an, a positive action. Here, your your body is in locomotion, and I am saying, you must do this for me. Mind you, I'm wearing a mask, so what does it matter if you don't? I thought it helps, which that's a whole other thing I don't understand, it, you know, why that's not a self-indictment. But then when you have this, you put it together, and they're talking about a new normal. And because the threshold is so low now, especially when you say in kids in school, it's lower than the flu. So when do we get out of this? I wanted to share with you and get your comments. I mentioned earlier in the show, Fox News had an article out. Bill Gates says coronavirus vaccine could require multiple doses. So that was the goalpost that was added. Oh, no, basically, you have to do this till there's a vaccine. And now is it? Well, you know what? There might be need to be multiple vaccines. So isn't this just an endless goalpost moving that is never going to end? I think that's exactly right. Initially, we talked about flattening the curve, depressing the peak, delaying the surge, making certain that hospital facilities could take care of the sick and not be overwhelmed. Well, we've accomplished those things in this country. And yet now the goalposts have moved. In Minnesota, we were monitoring doubling times. How long did it take for new cases to double? Well, we were looking very good from that perspective. So the Department of Health said, we're no longer going to monitor that. We're now going to switch to a per capita uh, case count. How many new cases per 100,000 people? It has been a constant game of moving the goalposts, taking whatever metrics make us look bad and make us fearful and putting those in the headlines. I've asked people, where does this stop? And Really, I think the only place that it would stop would be when the World Health Organization says the pandemic is over. And that's lunacy because we have never done what we're doing before, where we do the yep. lockdowns, we take away civil rights, we put out private health information to agencies so that they know where there's addresses with active COVID-19 disease. We, we shut down schools. We tell people to wear masks. We say, if you breathe in more carbon dioxide than you're accustomed to, we don't think that's going to be a problem. And yet when someone hyperventilates, what's one of the first first aid measures we do when someone hyperventilates? We have them breathe in a paper bag. We have them rebreathe their own air in a paper bag. Why do we do that? Because we know that that paper bag holds more carbon dioxide. We need to normalize the carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. We know that ventilation inspiration, expiration impacts on what our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels are in our blood. And when we talk about breathing into a mask, we're talking about breathing into at some level, a little bit of a bag and we're changing the chemistry. Now for most people that might be just fine, but there's probably at least 5% of the population where they have emphysema, chronic obstructive lung disease, asthma, seasonal allergic rhinitis, so many other diseases that this is not the easiest thing in the world. And it is difficult for these people yep. and they will suffer consequences. And, and another thing that I'm just struck by when you look at everything is that God's ways really seem perfect. I'm, I'm a layman. I'm not a medical professional. But the more I study this and spend time on it, I am just in awe of the way the immune system is created. And, and you talked about the T-cell immunity. And what I find amazing is that they are now upending the very elements that ensured that this really is very mild for most people. So could you talk about the consequences of you take kids, kids get coronaviruses all the time, their body more aggressively responds than they now. There's now a new preprint. I don't know if you've seen from uh, uh, British immunologists talking about how 60 percent of them downright have antibodies from cross 
um, coronavirus, you know, cross immunity from coronavirus, not just T cells. And that would explain why kids really, really like not just mildly, but they often are asymptomatic, don't get it. Um, it's very prevalent. But if you now sterilize kids and, and say, hey, we're going to automatically take temperatures so you can't have any fevers, any colds, which are actually really a good thing because that, that that ensures that this stuff is not a problem or more serious stuff is not a problem. What happens to these kids long term? And could you talk in general, not just kids, but the general population? What happens when you create a bubble boy phenomenon, when you turn healthy people and treat healthy people like sick people? What is that? Do what are the cascading effects of distorting that immunological ecosystem? Well, that's a great question. And the bottom line is we could create another absolute healthcare crisis down the road because if we let the kids now live in this bubble, so to speak, instead of having the typical exposure and if you will, becoming immune. So now they move into their 20s and 30s at some point without any of this immunity, then all of a sudden we're susceptible all over again. One of the questions I think we have to ask in regards to children is the fact that kids receive live virus vaccines during their first few years of life. Is that part of the reason why kids are doing so well with this uh, virus? This makes sense that when you're getting measles, mumps, rubella vaccines, and chickenpox vaccines, that your immune system is equipped. And then oftentimes kids are in daycare and they're being exposed to a pretty robust menu of viruses and they respond to them. So their immune system is good at this. We had a little scare a few months ago regarding Kawasaki's disease in kids that had COVID-19 potentially, yeah. but really that wasn't reaction to the virus itself as much as it was almost a hyper immune reaction. And we know that Kawasaki's does that. It does it to a variety of different kinds of viruses. But I think your point is, is well taken that if we do this to kids, the unintended consequences, the unknowns, uh, may be far more problematic than we could ever guess at. But this, again, points to our arrogance. The human body is equipped with a dramatically efficient immune system. And when we sort of think we'll take over and we'll yeah. manipulate, we'll manipulate how the genome responds, we'll manipulate who they get exposed to. This was never part of the initial equation. We never thought we were going to win this battle by squashing COVID-19. We knew that it was going to be at some level herd immunity, whether it happened in our own immune systems, whether it happened with the assistance of a vaccine. And to your point regarding the vaccines, I think it's very likely that the vaccine that ends up getting approved, if there is one, may well be a multi-dose vaccine. And it's also very likely that the vaccine that works for adults won't necessarily be the vaccine that would be appropriate for children. So we're going to have that split as well. And then we're going to have the difficulty manufacturing. And then we're going to have the difficulty of finding out, are there side effects that we didn't see during the trials, such as Guillain-Barre, which we saw in 1976 with that flu vaccination program? Wow. I mean, th this is the problem. And, and, and my concern is, where are the troops? Where is the cavalry? Why is the medical – what has happened to the medical profession? Are there people that quietly are – you know? understand this is nonsense but are too scared how could they go along with things that are such flat earth that are just defy common sense i mean i i know this oncologist around me i've seen you know he's all into this mass thing now and i watch him touching it puts it in his pocket reuses it i think to myself how in the world could a medical professional you would have talked to a guy like that in february or march he would have thought it's utterly insane to do something like that it's counterproductive I mean, anyone knew that. And now it's like they'll go along with it. I think we're seeing the manifestation of a profession that has become less scientifically inquisitive and more political. The medical profession used to be a calling. You went into medicine and you took the Hippocratic oath, and first and foremost, always was to take care of your patients. And I think we are seeing a schism in medical uh, doctors today. I have been sharply criticized by physicians, and I've been astonished because I've always enjoyed a, a good professional standing. And I've had physicians come after me and tell me that they're going to pursue my having my medical license removed. And, you know, I'll be honest. I'm talking to some physicians and 
they're right in line with my thinking. And I interface with other physicians and they're so mad at me. They won't even have a conversation. So I think we're seeing medicine has become more political. You put a microphone in front of a physician and you're going to hear their political perspective. I think we've compartmentalized medicine so much that if you're a nephrologist or you're an endocrinologist, or then that's, that's the world in which you see. I think primary care docs oftentimes are the ones that are in the trenches, frequently responding to their patients over the weekend. We're the ones that patients can get a hold of on a Monday morning. Good luck. You know, if it's a specialist, you might get a call back Holy in a few smokes. days. Holy smokes. Yeah, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but but it's eerie what you're telling me because I have a friend of mine who's who's a PA, you know, physician assistant, and he kept telling me, Daniel, these specialists are being insane. And I was like, what do you mean? What does specialists have to do with anything? So could you explain that a little bit more? So so he, my friend is right. There's something about the specialists that are going crazy with this. Well, I think medicine is all about relationships. I wrote a book uh, four years ago. It's Relationship Matters, and it's basically saying that. Patients should be encouraged to be their own best champion for their own health care because that's when you get the best health care. In days gone by, perhaps Marcus Welby was going to be there 24-7. But today, you oftentimes compartmentalize the patient. So the patient might have five different physicians. Then you'll have a cardiologist and an endocrinologist and perhaps uh, an oncologist. And then you have a primary care doc. And the primary care doc, like myself, will be a little hesitant to step in and potentially do the thing that the patient needs to have done because I don't want to step on the toes of a, quote, specialist. And the specialists aren't nearly as available to patients. Specialists oftentimes will use, if you will, mid-level providers to manage their workload. Oftentimes there will be an algorithm or a little bit of just a recipe. You, do, you have this, this is what you do. And patients frequently don't get the chance to weigh in. I think this is a huge problem, and we're seeing it with COVID-19. We're seeing primary care docs bleeding for their patients. They want to do whatever they can. If patients call me and say, Doc, would you be willing to treat me with hydroxychloroquine if I got that? And I tell, I tell them, well, I'm really hesitant to because this would put my medical license in jeopardy. Wow. Well, would you help me get budesonide? Would you let me do dexamethasone? What do you think about zinc and vitamin C and vitamin D? These are the kinds of things that are going, and patients have to feel like pawns because they are desperately wanting to be their own best champion, working with their physicians, but they don't have access and they don't have access to some of the, if you will, cutting edge potential treatments. That's what really scares me as a layman. You know, I, I think of everything very rationally. I, you know, I'm known as pretty worldly person. I deal with a lot of different issues, but you know, you get in the, in the weeds with certain medical conditions and there's a limit to what, uh, you know, where rational thought, or although, you know, it, it's good, it takes you pretty far, but there's a limit to, to what you know. And it scares me. What else don't these people know? If they believe in such flat earth things as undermining immunology, as overstating the threat assessment of a virus to the point where you actually make it worse. If you they believe in wearing a mask in a, in a non-clinical setting and kids and cross-contamination and, and God knows what. And then I think towards, you know, um, other things where this is not the first time you have with this so-called transgender stuff. And what shocks me is I don't know anything about medicine, but then you reach a point where I do know. So I might not know, you know, the internal organs and how they work the way a doctor does, but I know you can't chop off someone's genitals, male or female, and inject them with hormones and that somehow that's okay. I mean, if I come to a doctor and say, you know what? I self-identify as a killer whale today. And I, I want you to take off my leg, okay? I don't want to have legs. I mean, they, you wouldn't think twice. That violates the Hippocratic Oath. To me, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the stuff I'm talking about is even more systemic than the extrem extremities. How do you have doctors that, that will just do that? I mean, where's the science? I don't get it. Well, we're traveling fairly far afield from COVID-19, but I think to bring it back to that whole issue of physicians relating to patients, I think this is exactly what, if you will, incited a couple of allegations against me. I sure. was being seen as someone who was espousing a contrarian narrative, and evidently some people felt like I must have been making some sense, and it was potentially damaging 
to the narrative that they necessarily bought into. And so all of a sudden, I'm being accused of spreading reckless advice because I was willing to compare COVID-19 to influenza. And my response was, what would you have me compare COVID-19 to? It isn't like tuberculosis or Ebola or gonorrhea or shingles. It's like a respiratory virus. And the other allegation that I was accused of was because I questioned the death certificates and the fact that we were being sort of coached to go ahead and use COVID-19 in a situation where we're any other respiratory viral illness, we would not be, I've never received anyway, coaching to go ahead and use, if you will, a swine flu influenza as the underlying cause of death. These are the kinds of things that have come up. And I never put myself out there as a virologist or an infectious disease specialist or an epidemiologist, even though I've studied epidemiology, I've studied virology, and I treat viral illnesses every day. What I feel I provide, Daniel, and perhaps it even correlates with what you provide, I'm trying to connect the dots. I'm yep. a vice chairman of the Health and Human Services Committee in the Senate, and I've carried major medical legislation the last two years on insulin and pharmacy benefit managers, so I'm involved in policy discussions. I've been teaching at the medical school for 30 years, and I'm in, in the trenches, family doctor, uh, who takes care of people all the way from two days of age to 102 years of age. And so I think what troubles me so deeply, and one of the reasons I look forward to having the conversation with you, was the fact that there seems to be, in the minds of many, no room for a contrarian narrative. And I don't think that that's where we want to be as a country. We want, exactly. if there's a narrative you don't like, ask me the questions. Ask me why it is that I see it this way and not the way you see it. This is where we've been in the past, but we've become intellectually dumbing down. Mm. And now it's just pick your, your which, line, uh, which side of the line are you on? And then you stick with it. And you don't want facts. You don't want questions. You don't want conversations. You just are. And if someone disagrees with you, you hold them in contempt. And this is perhaps the most frightening part of this whole thing, because we're not done yet. The vaccine is going to be a whole nother conversation, just as masks is its own entire conversation. And this is what's scary. It's not like we're the one with the contrarian novel approach. This has been the straight and narrow. They're the ones that have changed and often midway. I mean, like the stuff that Fauci and the World Health Organization and the Surgeon General and CDC in their own in-house journal as late as May on mass, that came from deep-rooted conviction. It wasn't like, yeah, well, we really thought it did work, but we were scared we didn't have enough mass. That's what they kind of say now, well, we thought there was a shortage. That's not what they said. They came from a very deeply-rooted opinion that you can't really stop the spread of something this small that spreads like the flu, respiratory virus, that there's a lot of cross-contamination issues. It's extremely novel to say that you could just wear that on your face in 100-degree weather. Now they're starting outdoors, two-year-old kids in, in, in the county I live in. And it's like, whoa, I mean, forget about your politics. Like, let, let's ask some questions. Let's let's study that a little bit. I mean, that 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 is very severe. So they're the ones coming with the novel ideas and, and, and they're making it that you can't even talk about it. Um, I know you got to run. Just one quick thing. You got in trouble, obviously, over uh, questioning the COVID death count. Um, here's what I don't understand. I made this mathematical point to a friend of mine, and I thought it's important to get this out. Even if the infection fatality rate would go down to zero, it's not. It's, it's actually low, but it, it, it's not. But let's, say, let's just say it would go down to absolute zero. As long as the cases still percolate, this is so convoluted, we're going to still have COVID deaths. How? Well, isn't it true that basically roughly 55, 57,000 Americans die every week? A good percentage at any given point are going to have COVID. And we're, te we're obsessively testing. And we're finding that it is broadly, broadly, broadly very mild, often asymptomatic. Really, the majority of times it's seem seemingly asymptomatic. It's hard to pin down an exact number. And it's not like Ebola where someone got it. You're like, yeah, you know what? He died of it. You know, yeah, he more likely died of it. Now it's like, imagine if you have the cold and, and you have the ability to test every human being in an obsessive way. And then anyone who dies, you code as that. So to me, it's inconceivable 
that we're not roping in a significant number. So let me just say, take it to Minnesota. Your state holds the distinction of the highest percentage of the state death pie that comes from long-term care facilities for seniors. It's around 80% in the state of Minnesota. Um, I've heard from the Florida governor, and I've seen this in news articles, where even in nursing homes, where certainly it's very dangerous, and certainly if you get a very symptomatic case, it could turn deadly, but even among them, there were nursing homes where 70% were still asymptomatic, right? That, that, that cross immunity could still potentially apply to them, probably less so than, than younger people, but it still does apply, mildly symptomatic. If you get that type of case of it, and you had Alzheimer's, m- most in nursing homes seem to die from Alzheimer's, pulmonary, or, or, or heart attack. Well, you didn't die of COVID. How much of that is happening in Minnesota? That's a great question. And certainly I've got a lot of patients as well as constituents and friends call me and tell me of a situation where a loved one of theirs passed away in a nursing home of congestive heart failure or potentially renal failure or dementia. And a few days later, they received the death certificate and they were flabbergasted to see that it had been listed as a COVID-19 death. Now, I've heard too many of these cases, and I've actually seen some of the documentation in one or two of them, so that I know what's going on. On the other hand, I appreciate the fact that in Minnesota, after I made a stink about how death certificates should be completed, Minnesota has come out and said, we are not going to identify something as a COVID-19 death unless there's a laboratory-confirmed test. And I appreciate that. But you're going a step further. You're saying that's not the sole end of it, because if you do have a laboratory confirmed test, that does not mean you had COVID-19 as your cause of death. And you are absolutely right. And all anybody has to do is listen to the Illinois public health director who made the comment. And she said it right out. She just said, just because it says on your death certificate that you died of COVID-19 doesn't mean you died of COVID-19. It can't be any more clear than that. And then you see Pennsylvania and Colorado and Kentucky and multiple other states reduce their COVID-19 death count because they've been challenged. Then you see New York go the other way where because there's a delta or a difference between the normal level and the normal number of deaths during a given time frame versus the preceding three-year average, and then making the assumption, oh, well, that difference must have been undetected COVID-19, so we're going to bump up our accounts. This is astonishing. In a day where the public trust is so critically important and we need good, reliable data, we are seeing public health officials, whether they be in the CDC or in state departments of health, making just unbelievable decisions. And I think they underestimate the inquisitiveness and the engagement and the smartness of the American people, because, Daniel, we're not buying it. We're just not buying what they're selling. I really hope that's true. I know we see it in the data. Um, I've written several thousand articles in my career, and the ones on on COVID data and the shows as well, in terms of downloads and things like that, we see it. And I know you saw it with your videos, which is why you got in trouble. It's why Dr. Erickson um, got in trouble with uh, you know the mob when he put out his video, got millions of hits, because people want to see this. And This is not novel. It's intuitive. I mean, the New York Times reported that Miami's largest hospital saw up to a third of the patients coming in for car accident trauma, which increased once the lockdown was over because, you know, cars are on the roads. You have car accidents. They had COVID and, you know, but they weren't coming in for that. So now you have it at the hospitalization level, died of COVID versus died with COVID, hospitalized of COVID, hospitalized with COVID. Um, The Rhode Island health director, this is already in May, said that um, it's not exactly a quote, but to paraphrase that if you break your ankle and you come in, you're you're now kind of universally tested in many hospitals. Um, you might have it. And that's our point. This is very, very common. Just like in the flu season, you might really have the flu. You might have a cold. If we would test for it, um, we've done more testing over a given weekend for COVID than we did in flu six, three flu uh, seasons put together. So yes, you're going to discover it. And a certain amount of people, unfortunately, who come in for trauma, they're going to die. Um, we had the, the motorcycle accident in Florida and Orlando where that was coded as a COVID death. And it's just like there's no sense of humility. Um, So my final question to you is going back to the political. The biggest thing that shocks me is not that there are elements that would use this as a pretext to do what they always want to do. Let's face it. The solution is always the same. 
more government control of your life. Um, whether it's global warming, whether it's this, it's it's always to say, well, you hate people, you're racist, you harm people. It it it, it, it sells very well. But what I'm shocked about that this is the issue of our time. I have never experienced, none of us have experienced where politics affects our life this dramatically, this intimately, our children. It is shocking what is happening with my my kids in a private school to make young kids wear a mask. I have a very difficult decision ahead of me. Where are the Republicans? I, I am not seeing an alternative vision, alternative data. I see a smattering of people like you here and there. Where are they? The Republican Party needs to pivot. We need to become the party that doesn't shy away from challenging crucial conversations. I think that in the four years I've been in the Senate, I've been most disappointed in the Republican Party when we shy away from having the hard conversation. We can handle the hard conversations. But what we need to do is we need to make certain that our core convictions of personal individual liberties parent choices, limited government. If you, if you remember the preamble to the uh, Constitution, you know, to ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, but then to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity for future generations, we have absolutely given up on that. I think that's one reason why many Republicans, I think, are starting to rally saying, okay, we can have differences of opinions in whether or not we discuss decriminalizing trivial amounts of marijuana possession. We, instead of that being, if you will, a lightning rod issue, we can have the hard conversation. But we need to stand strong that when it comes to what is America, someone can't come and tell us that they're going to shut down our business. They're going to make us deplete yeah. our life savings because they deem our business as not essential. This is the issue of the day. And if there's any silver lining to the cloud, Daniel, it's that I think Republicans have the ability to say enough is enough. We understand that they're moving the goalposts. We understand that policymakers like people to be in fear because it paralyzes our ability to think for ourselves. It pushes us into groupthink. But by George, we're not going to have it. We are not going to do the group think thing. We're going to think for ourselves. And when you tell us that you're going to move the metrics, when you're going to tell us the most important thing isn't flattening the curve, isn't hospital capacity being outstripped, but instead it's masks or instead it's another lockdown. We're going to say no. And at some point in time, I hate to say this, but at some point in time, you are going to see an increasing level of civil disobedience. And this is going to be a critical factor as to how do we deal with that as a country? Because we've already seen that if you riot and demonstrate without masks, without following physical distancing guidelines, it's condoned. You get but, your voice heard because we don't have equal justice under the law. We have a special tiered system that if you're a preferred group of people, I just wrote an article today. I'm sure you've seen it from the Supreme Court where casinos could be open, but churches can't, even though they're more stable and less uh, dynamic where, where people are moving around and going to different tables in a casino and touching things. Um, that's what it is. If you're a preferred special interest and because um, I was going to ask you, being from Minnesota, there's a lot of debate over how this quasi second wave came. It seemed like we were kind of done with it. And then it came, it's coming elsewhere in the world, but it seemed like it, it did come here a little bit more pervasively, mainly not that many deaths and the media is exaggerating it. But there's a lot of cases where they always there. Do, do you think that the riots did play a little bit of a role? Well, actually, on June 15th, if you had asked me what I would hope for over the next four to six weeks, which is where we're at right now, on June 15th, I would have said, I hope that we don't see another peak or surge because of the riots around June 1st. And we didn't. And I, I would have said, I hope we see continuing cases occur so that we are moving towards herd immunity. And we're getting that. And in large part, we're getting that because of increased testing. But we're also getting people reengaging. And they're, they're, if you will, the disease is spreading uh, and people are, are sliding, skating through it without much difficulty. I would have wanted to see a decreasing uh, fatality rate. We're getting that. 
dramatically. I would have wanted to see less hospitalizations, less ICU care. We're getting that. We have a, a little bit more than 100 people in our ICUs, and we have the ability to have 2,500 or 3,000 ICU beds if we need. We're getting what we have. I don't know if the demonstrations or riots did it, because sure. I think the Japanese culture has said the three things that they look for in terms of problems is when you're in confined spaces, when you're in crowded spaces, and I think when you're in uh I think the other one was closed spaces. Yep. And those are the three that they said they look for. Well, if you are outside, there probably is minimal risk. And so from my perspective, what we need to do is we need to look at the facts. And the facts are we're getting increased cases. The age of the patient who's getting the new cases has dropped in Minnesota from some areas from 60 years of age down to 20s. They're skating through it. Our death counts have dropped dramatically. And we know that in some situations, the diagnosis of the cause of death probably isn't accurate. That's why we're seeing as much pushback as we are. So to me, I don't see that we need to be this doom and gloom. And we certainly should not be looking at another lockdown. And we certainly should be opening up schools. And if teachers don't want to teach, we need to let individual school districts figure out how they can do it. One size doesn't fit all. We don't have to cookie cutter approach this. There are places that in our state of Minnesota, we have 87 counties. I've got probably 50 counties where there's been less than a handful of cases where yes. there's been no deaths, if any, maybe one or two, if any. Sure. There is no reason to tell an outstate county that they have to behave like a Minneapolis school district. Exactly. In a lot of these places, it hasn't reached the flu levels or certainly the 2018 pandemic flu levels. So and, and we did nothing for that as a society. It's it's funny when you ask people when you say 2018, they're like, what's that? <laughs> you know, kind of like people who lived through, I guess you lived through um, certainly 68 or 57. Hey, what was it like? I asked my dad and he's like, what? what's that? I, I heard of the 72 oil crisis, but I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and it just it just gives a lot of perspective. You know, I I was telling people that. I, I took a look at Woodrow Wilson's, President Wilson's speech, State of the Union Address, on December 2nd, 1918. And I, I want to see what he said, because if you think about it, that was literally days after the main thrust of the worst of the Spanish flu ended in, in it was October, November. And I, and I took a look at it, and there was no reference to it. And, he, and mind you, he himself got it. Um, I don't know what, to what degree, but he got it, and there was no reference it's 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 astounding, and he was the first president in over 100 years to give these formal in-person speeches rather than sending in a, a letter to Congress. So there was kind of a big deal, a lot of fanfare. He didn't talk about it. I mean, it, it just gives you perspective of how they live through things. And even if you want to say we want to do some measure, double the flu, triple the flu, but to upend our lives like this, I my fear is there's no there's no safety net. It's, it's like spiraling out of control, and each one's trying to one-up the next. Oh, I'm going to mandate it this. And, and, and then, he, Scott, here's the funny thing. I wish their stuff worked. I wish we were wrong. Then you'd have tyranny for two months. It would be over. But the irony is it doesn't work. They've had these mass mandates where I live. Not, I haven't found a single person, human being, not wearing one in, in, indoors ever um, for two and a half months. The New York Times has a heat map of it near 100% compliance, and it doesn't work. And then they go on to, well, now you got to do this. Now you got to do that. Well, there's no introspection. Well, you know, what about your first thing? I mean, it didn't work. I mean, who who says this is it? So um, any closing thoughts before we let you go? The fact that people like you, Daniel, are so passionate and are demanding of Americans to continue to engage is, for me, the overarching optimistic note I have to focus on because I see people like you and people like me trying to connect the dots. And when I say that, I think we're trying to provide context. You just mentioned 2018, and that's extremely relevant. The fact that we had, in the eyes of many epidemiologists, somewhere around 80,000 people die of the flu in 2018, and nobody knew about it. We didn't have an article every other day about some 100-year-old person dying of the terrible influenza. We didn't have that. We're trying to provide context. I'm going to continue to try to do so in my position as both a senator as a physician, and you're going to do it for someone who compels people to think, interact, and listen to a media source other than a legacy media source. 
that's what gives me hope, Daniel, is that people that are in control, the bureaucrats, the politicians, and the sort, they may think that they've got this thing won, but it ain't over yet. We are going to continue to push back and say, and I think we're going to get on the other side of this. And when we do, we're going to need more than ever people like you, Daniel, to hold accountability for some of those people who are such goofballs and seem to have such a political agenda. We need to warn everybody. There will be a day of accountability because some of what's gone on is criminal. From your lips to God's ears, thanks so much for joining us today for a very long time. Very enlightening. Please come back and update us on what's going on with you and, and you being investigated. And, and, and look, hopefully we will be on the other side of this next time. Folks, we are out of time. Send this show to 50 to 100 of your friends and relatives. Get the truth. Stay empowered and stay knowledgeable. 